Welcome back to the NGB Ideas podcast. This show is about the personal journeys of innovators, disruptors, and leaders in the Canadian life sciences community, and it's brought to you by LabOccupier.com. I'm Jim Wilson, and on the show today, we're speaking with Glenn McCarthy, President and CEO of LabWorks International. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. I was born in North Bay. You were born in the other bay, Thunder Bay, which a lot of people get confused. Thunder Bay is a little bit further away from Toronto. And for our listeners who may not know, Thunder Bay was created in 1970 when Port Arthur and Fort William were amalgamated. And I have to ask, what were citizens of each called? Were they Port Arthurians? Were they Fort William sons? What were they? I think we just refer to them as the other folks across the other side of the tracks. Which one were you? Did you grow up in Fort Williamson or Port Arthur? I was a Fort William guy. Okay. We'll say that you were one of the good guys. What was it like growing up in the Lakehead? It was excellent because it was a humble, small city to cut your teeth and be surrounded by hardworking people who had a common view to just living a good life and working hard. And many of us had aspirations for a bigger picture type atmosphere, hence we left the city to come to Southern Ontario to get an education and to get on our way to do what we wanted to do professionally. A lot of people also went west. I guess Winnipeg is a heck of a lot closer to Thunder Bay than Toronto, which a lot of people are not aware of. Your father was a car salesman. What do you remember about him? A lot of great things. As a matter of fact, he just passed two weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. He lived to the right beach in 97, so he had a good ride. He was a essential service guide. He looked after his customers. He was absolutely fixated on making people happy that way. Good business breeds business, and he worked really hard to make sure that his customers were always looked after, no matter what. He was a social butterfly as well. I heavily involved in Kiwanis, Knights of Columbus, you know, at the church. And he was a salt and direct guy. And after my dad just passed, I received numerous emails from friends and family relating back to how great Lily enjoyed my father's company and how much of a stand-up gentleman he was. Wonderful legacy. Is your mom still with us? No, my mom, unfortunately, passed about five years ago. So she passed the ripe age of 94. Wow, I hope you've got those genes. She was, a, I understand, a fairly bold woman who wasn't afraid of much. Could you tell us a bit about her? There were nine kids in the family, eight guys, and... You know, my dad being off at work and such, my mom was left at the helm to run the ship and not a lot of money to go around to bring in service technicians to fix the ever the ever running washing machine, dishwasher, etc. But my mother wasn't afraid of anything. She said, I got the can do attitude, I'll pull the dishwasher out, I'll pull the washing machine out. I always said, Mom, what are you doing? She'd say, No damn washing machine won't work. Take your heart and fix it. I said, Mom, I'm learning something here. She'd take the wires off, or she'd take the machine component down to the store and say, look, I don't think this thing works. And the guy to put a multimeter to it and said, yes, ma'am, you're right. Here's a new one for $50. Take it home. And she was the hero of the day. And she just knew how the thing clicked or didn't click properly. She sounds like an amazing woman. She was an amazing woman. You mentioned you've got seven brothers and one sister. Where are you in the pecking order? I was the third from the bottom. <laughs> so you took the leftovers and hopefully everybody still gets along. Could you tell us a bit about your siblings? Uh, they all left Thunder Bay to come here to go to school. Three brothers went to Guelph and studied fine arts. My eldest brother was a landscape architect. My next brother was an artist, still is an artist. My one brother passed away with cancer. They all went on to careers, and we all followed our passion, if you want to put it that way. 
Your parents were heavily involved in the community and their church, and you've said they let you and your brothers and sister be kids, even when you were tearing the house apart. I hope you didn't tear it apart too often. Well, my mom was good at putting it back together again. Do you think that freedom to explore had a lasting impact on all of you, or did it instill a, a sense of creativity? Absolutely. Absolutely. I swear to God, it did. Gave us the opportunity to explore, having an exploring type mold myself, being in the basement. My one brother, he wanted to be a chemist, and he had his own chemistry lab playing with weird and wonderful chemicals. I had my little lab underneath the stairs. I wanted to be an inventor. That's the early engineering was kicking in, I guess. Where did you go to school? I'm assuming it was in Thunder Bay. High school in Thunder Bay. Then we all left one by one, and I couldn't get into engineering school anywhere else with my marks were good enough. I was too busy running. I was a competitive runner, so I spent a lot of time in running shoes and traveling the country. But my brother said, your mindset, I think you should go to engineering school, apply to Ryerson. They gave me a conditional offer upon going back to summer school and picking up English mark in grade 13 English. So I did. So I got a conditional offer, came to Ryerson, did my three years for mechanical engineering diploma, but then found out subsequently I couldn't get a professional engineering license. So I embarked on a long journey of 10 years of night school at U of T to get my professional engineering designation. I look forward to getting into that. You mentioned you were a runner. How competitive were you? Well, the guys I ran with ran sub four minute miles. That was a pretty competitive bunch. Olympic class runners. And that was 15 seconds off the pack. They all got scholarships but me. I wasn't scholastically gifted anyways, but I was, I was pretty good on two feet. Came down to Toronto. You went to Ryerson, which is now Toronto Metropolitan University. And your degree at Ryerson was in mechanical engineering technology. And at that time... Ryerson was not an accredited university. If I recall correctly, some students had difficulty landing a job after graduating simply because their degrees were not recognized. And it sounds like you had a similar problem. I didn't have a problem getting a job. I started earlier than my roommates. It was a really bad recession in the early 80s. Many of them opted to stay in school to get further education. And I said, I'm going to go hunt for a job. I want to get married. I went to hunt for a job and, and I went for my first interview and I flunked out of that one, but I went to my next interview and we hit it off immediately and they hired me on the spot. And who was that with? It was a very small company called Constant Temperature Control Limited. It was a father-son operation here in North Toronto. And is that company still around? No, they're not. They were in this industry that I'm in now, so I cut my teeth with them, if you want to put it that way. Worked by day building environmental chambers and hangers, all kinds of punky stuff. You were going to night school, you're working during the day, and you went to night school for how many years? Ten years. Most people would have given up. That's where the statistic comes from, that anybody who applies through this program in that manner, only 2% make it. That's a teaser to me that says, you can't cross the finish line 26 miles, aka a marathon or whatever, at this certain timeline. That's a challenge to me that says, you can't have this piece of paper. That's the worst thing you can say to my mindset. So I said... I'm the 2% crowd, not the 98% crowd. So I did what I had to do to get the 2% bracket. You eventually landed at Honeywell, where you spent quite a few years. What was your starting job at Honeywell? I was a project engineer. And what did that entail at that time? It was an interesting venture because the first day I started, my boss said, today's your lucky day. We're off to our first job site meeting. We're going to a confectionery plant called Nestle's downtown on the West End near the Annex. They had a plan to rebuild a 100-year-old chocolate factory to bring it into the new millennium. And the first project was upgrading the Smarties manufacturing facility. So I spent five years on a chocolate plant 
I became almost an employee of Nestle's, but I was an employee of Honeywell, but I was an on-site engineer, so I, I had my own office, and it was a journey and a half. I loved every minute of it, and I love chocolate. <laughs> That's too wide. Thank you so much for your service, sir. Where were you living at the time? My wife and I got married. Our first house was in Scarborough, and then my boss, Constant Temperature, he lived in King City and said, you're going to raise a family. It's a great place to raise a family. King City is a nice old quaint village, but we just couldn't afford it. We worked our way up, and we ended up living in King City for many, many years. We're raising our kids there. If I understand correctly, in 1996, you graduated from University of Toronto with a degree in mechanical engineering. From there, you continued on with Honeywell. And in eight years, you went from being an entry-level project engineer to senior project engineer. And then in 1994, you became an account executive. Was that a sales position? Essentially, yes. And what about that job, do you recall? I picked up naturally the Honeywell account. I managed the Nestle's account on behalf of Honeywell, to which I had enjoyed much success because I was already fixture within the chocolate factory. Whatever work they were doing, they were spending $100 million over six years. I was at the forefront of helping guide that ship to bringing this old, old factory up to today's standards. I was a lucky salesman. All I had to do was look after these guys and just tell them what they wanted to hear, turn them into reality, and the rest was history. Wow. In January 1998, you were appointed National Sales Manager of Energy Services. What is that? That was our business unit whereby we developed a model within Honeywell globally where we could go into old buildings, particularly school boards, hospitals, and we could make them more energy efficient by upgrading their capital equipment to reduce their energy expenditure. And the energy we would save would be equated to dollars, and those dollars would pay for the actual project. So it was a self-funding mechanism to pay for the multi-million dollar budget. Infrastructure is old, money's tight, but you're going to pay the electrical man anyway, so if we could shave off money on the electrical water and gas bills, use that to fund the actual project to people itself. And we would guarantee the energy saving. Being Honeywell, we had deep pockets. And if there was a shortfall of the energy savings, we would pay the difference on the mortgage that we took out of the world. No lose proposition, and it was a very successful business. And it sounds like a wonderful opportunity. So you were there for about seven years and eventually left the company in 2005 to start LabWorks. And I would appreciate you walking us through this time. First, where did you get the idea for the company? It had been noodled around in the back of my head for many years that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I just didn't know what. I knew it had to have real firm teeth in order to be successful. I just didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I was enjoying the ride in Honeywell. The higher I rose up in the ladder, the less I liked it. The politics got thicker and the baloney got thicker. It wasn't my type of environment. However, given my industry experience building environmental chambers for constant temperature control, I think I could maybe start a business unit within Honeywell doing the same thing. And they allowed me to do so. I came across something and I invented it further. I think this is my ticket out of Honeywell. And I spoke to my boss and said, I've got an idea. I want to go to the market with this product only within Canada. I had some great success early on. And then I'd said, okay, the light bulb went off. And I said, if this is as successful as I think it's going to be, I better make the decision now because otherwise they're going to spend the rest of my life on an airplane running around North America with the product that I essentially invented. I didn't like that. So I opted to take it and run with it myself with their blessing. So LabWorks is a spinoff of Honeywell, if you want to put it that way. And did they have an equity share in it when it first started or were you bootstrapping yourself? Bootstrapping myself. They allowed me to take the technology idea because it was mine. I, I played with them on the weekends. It was a spare time project, but I knew it had capabilities, so I just stuck with it. 
put my heart and soul into it on the weekends. And refrigeration engineers, I saw the vision as well. And we turned that vision into a reality. So you knew heading out the door that this thing was going to fly. I did. I had a very, very strong suspicion it was going to fly. LabWorks specializes in providing turnkey design build solutions for critical applications. What exactly does that mean? Can you put that into layman's terms? We built clean rooms for stem cell research, cell and gene therapy. We built many of the freezers for the vaccine storage across North America for the big pharmaceutical companies like Moderna and J&J. And we built critical requirements for research for people maybe doing a PhD study or adding a new drug or testing drugs. So many of these rooms are full of high-valued products or valuable experiments to somebody. We control those environmental conditions without failing due to mechanical failure or just poor design. The design aspect is something I'd like to dig into because I read that when you started the company, you vowed to base it first and foremost on engineering. Why was that important to you? I had witnessed other companies who really took a strong view to having a really strong underpinning of their company to be fundamentally based on strong engineering principles. I wanted to use the same formula to say that we have more engineers on staff than anybody else in our industry. And that remains a fact today. I believe we have more technical staff than anybody of our class in this industry. Guys who really are subject matter experts and specialists. We can really take on those more challenging projects with pure technical knowledge that's been proven and is reliable and robust and works. What other services do you offer? Like, could you give us a broad overview? Anything that requires a climatic controlled environment, be it temperature, humidity, cleanliness, or raw product storage, mainly finished goods, we build a lot of big 3PL coolers and freezers for the trucking and the storage industry that they are in turn hired by the pharmaceutical companies act as a repository for their drugs because they don't have the infrastructure themselves. They'll rent out temperature controlled spaces from these other folks. When would a company want you on their radar? Like at what point of their development stage should they be saying, hey, I got to call those guys up in Woodbridge? Once they conceptualize what it is that they want to do, aka they have to develop a user requirement specification. And this is the recipe for describing in great explicit detail what it is they want to do with, with the environment, what they want to achieve. Then we take that, we digest it, and we turn it into a design, which then we turn into a workload solution via pulling the various products and services together that make it work, like an integrator. We integrate various parts and pieces of the puzzle to hold it together to make a piece of solution work. Where has business taken you so far geographically? How far afield? All across North America and some conversations to looking at projects in Korea and Mexico and possibly Puerto Rico. Would 50% of your business be Canadian? Would it be 80%? Right now it's about 50% Canadian, 50% U.S. There's a tremendous amount of pharmaceutical development going on in the United States plus manufacturing. They have absolutely mega, mega, mega projects going on. Places like North Carolina, Denver, San Francisco, the Boston area, et cetera. And interesting, they're all tied to the biggest universities in the country where the brains exist. Yeah, exactly. We hope you're enjoying today's show and would like to remind our listeners the NGB Ideas podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. This one-day speakers event is taking place at the Hamilton Convention Center on Monday, October 2nd. For details, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. Over the years, I have occasionally sent you 
pictures of equipment with your company sticker on it saying, hey, I saw you again. I see your equipment in Mars, in university and research hospital labs. And every time I see it, I think, you know what? That sticker is just good old fashioned basic marketing. And where do you get your leads? Are you pulling business in or is it just coming to you because of who you are? We do a lot of research and development on where to point our antennas to look for the bigger opportunities. We work very closely with some of the biggest engineering firms who are building out some of the biggest pharmaceutical facilities in the world right now in the United States. And they've come to know us by first name because everything we touch for them turns to gold. They haven't had a lot of great traction with some of our counterparts. Everything we touch would do it very, very well. All the case being Johnson & Johnson, we did a job for them here in Markham. And one of their big engineering managers came up from Pennsylvania head office came to the Markham facility and stood back with his arms crossed and basically said, this is beautiful and it works tremendously well. Who are you guys? And then I explained to him, a married band of crazy engineers. And he said, I could really use you guys in other facilities because good guys like you are hard to find. He basically dragged us from Canada in the United States because he had problems with freezers down in the Memphis distribution facility and said, please send one of your top engineers down there. Tell me what's wrong with this system and then give me a price to fix it and just go get it done. Make it work. That's what you guys do well. And you love getting calls like that. He turned out to be a great guy. So you've been running LabWorks now for 18 years. What has been the biggest challenge during that time, and, and what did you learn from it? One of the biggest challenges is consistency in engineering. As much as you can run, you're going to stumble a little bit. So we had some designs that went out that weren't nearly perfect as they should be. So I instituted a process we call a design review process that engineer, they have to get up and defend it like a thesis in front of the rest of us to ask the tough questions about where could the wheels come off in this design that could get us into trouble or to satisfy a customer. We created a very detailed design review process that makes us sharper so that we have consistent designs that are robust, reliable, and well thought through and accurate. And it's worked tremendously well. It's a mindset of perfection. What a great idea. I've never heard of a company doing that to the degree that you're explaining it. There was a project in Western Canada a few years ago that at one point turned into one of the biggest challenges you've ever faced. Could you tell us a bit about that? The University of Manitoba, they came to us and they said they wanted to build some ice simulation chambers. They wanted to grow ice flowers, which is a natural occurrence in the Arctic. Interesting, the Arctic temperature is just never really consistently perfectly frozen at minus 40. The temperature does actually deviate depending on which way the wind blows. So they wanted to create an environment where they had relatively steady airflow. It wasn't violent like you would normally experience because the wind isn't always howling in the Arctic. But it was a very, very challenging project because the temperature variations were very, very subtle. So we opted not to build it on site and create a never-ending consulting project, trial and error project. It's a, tell you what, we have our own test shooter here at Chato. We will build you a mock-up system at our expense. You will fly into Toronto. You'll come play with it for a couple of days and then decide what you like or dislike about it. We'll change it. And then we'll build the other five rooms of the exactly the same so you have the best desired outcome. And it worked out tremendously well. I understand one of the things you learned from that project, and correct me if I'm wrong, was, for lack of a better term, to be brave, to not be afraid to take a leap of faith. Is that correct? Pretty much. Because if we have control of it here, then that's 
part of the secret sauce of saying, if the wheels come off, we can fix it here very quickly and under their own control, being we have our, our test chambers only 50 feet from our workstations, and we will walk over to the back of the shop and tune it and tweak it and watch it behave exactly the way we want it to. We're suspending nights, weekends, and hotels in Winnipeg. There's a challenge. There's always a solution, just no matter how you think about it. So the answer is yes, we'll figure it out. Figure it out. We'll make it work here, perfect it, then you can play with it and have it. But we're not going to use you as a guinea pig. Being a guinea pig in a lab environment is not what you want to be. I would expect that managing risk is a big part of what you folks have to do. That's why I don't sleep very much. It keeps me up at night because a poorly operating vaccine freezer full of half a billion dollars worth of drugs is nerve-wracking. The more you think about it and plan it out, the better off you are. You've completed, I would guess, hundreds if not thousands of projects over the years, and I'm, I'm interested to know what you're most proud of professionally. I would say I'm most proud of being able to pull a company together. We have a very strong mentoring program here. We have a lot of engineering interns. We get guys out of the best universities in Canada. We bring them in. We get them to work with the older subject matter experts, and we have this tiering of training going on continuously in a very interactive, collaborative atmosphere where the older guys are teaching the younger guys, and the younger guys are going off to school doing their next six months of their term and coming back, and they're teaching us old guys stuff. So it's really fun. It's a very dynamic environment. The hiring and the team, I suspect, like many other companies, was affected by COVID. Were you folks working remotely over the last few years? I've been a both. COVID fortunately was good to us because of the requirements for building vaccine facilities, strong part of our business today. A, we were very busy. B, we were, we were considered an essential business, so we were able to bring our engineers into the ops and our project managers. Really proud that we've been able to build a team of like-minded individuals. Some guys are really, really passionate about what they do, and that's a key thread in everything we do and touch here. We want that customer to be absolute delight at the end of the job. Good news travels fast, bad news travels faster kind of attitude. The team at LabWorks is what now, 40 people? We're at 48 people. Trying to manage that number of staff comes with its fair amount of stress. What do you do to keep an even keel? How do you unwind? I ride my bike a lot and sleep. You've taken bicycle vacations. Where have you gone? A good buddy of mine who I went to night school with became an executive in Switzerland. So we rode all of Switzerland, a little bit of Germany. And then we moved over to some other countries like France, Spain, Italy. Most recently, I was in Palma, Spain last spring, and I'm going again in two weeks. Wherever there's good weather and good roads, I'm there. It sounds like a few hills, more than a few hills. I've cycled a few mountain stages of the Tour de France, yes. Good on you. Are there any observations you've made or advice that you've received over the years, perhaps from your father, but from anyone that has stuck with you? Yeah, there's probably a couple. My dad would always say, follow up, follow up, follow up. Get close to your customers. My dad was just incredible how he would follow up with people. He would send them personalized birthday cards. So we do that here religiously within the group of people that we have. As a matter of fact, we celebrate four birthdays today, including mine. Happy birthday. So we celebrate our victories, including birthdays and anniversaries, and take them out for lunch on a one-by-one basis. Following up with customers is a big thing. Being connected to the industry is very important because the industry, of course, is in a constant state of flux. If you fire your ear to the rail all the time, then you, you know where the market's moving and shaking and you can anticipate those moves. I would suspect that, based on what you said earlier about your mother, that she probably had some pretty good words of advice as well. Work hard and be better than anybody else. Good words to live by. 
I'm sure have listeners who are just starting out in their careers. Is there any advice you would impart to them if you had the opportunity? Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. Be be a man of action or a person of action. Be passionate about what you do. Otherwise, go find something else. Because if you love what you do, it's not work. It becomes a really fancy hobby. Yeah, good point. I'm so blessed that this is just a great hobby, and I love it. It's such an interesting industry. I get to work with very, very intelligent people who are much smarter than I am. They're way beyond my pay grade, but they're great people. They're on a mission to solve cancer and move stem cells around so they cure people. It's incredible. I know from experience and from reputation that you and your team are some of the best in the business, and I, I really do appreciate you making the time to join us today. There was one situation I'd like to touch on. I read that you had a Tim Hortons coffee in Dubai that taught you a lesson about setting client expectations and about the importance of customer service. Do you remember what happened? I was told pressed how a coffee, a Tim Hortons coffee in Dubai, tasted exactly the same Tim Hortons coffee I had here in Toronto. And to me, that meant that they have great processes within an organization to be able to deliver the same consistent product anywhere on the planet. There's a lot of change taking place in the Canadian life sciences community at the moment. Can you share your thoughts on what you see? And do you have any insights on where you think we collectively are heading? The language we're getting from the government, I would pass them a, a little pat on the back in the sense that I think they saw the vision, albeit maybe a little bit too late, that Canada should be an independent entity in its own as, as it comes to developing and making their own vaccines. And I can say that, you know, given our involvement in the development and the manufacturing side, those wheels are very much in motion. And we're quite proud to be part of that activity. And that we do have a vision for that. And it's coming to fruition, finally. As they say, better late than never. What does the future hold for LabWorks? Where will your company be in five or 10 years? What do you think? We want to stay on the cutting edge of technology. We want to stay on the cutting edge of requirements for our clients. The more they challenge us, the better we get. It really challenges our engineering skills to the highest level, and we, we take that across the organization to the more senior engineers we have, the young interns, the guys who may be doing their master's degrees, et cetera. It's encouraging that many of these young guys who are finishing off their engineering degrees, they're picking real-life projects out of our company to actually do a capsule and projects on, which is really encouraging. So we're getting some really incredible results of that. We can control a controlled environmental room. That's eight feet by eight feet by eight feet, so it's a, it's a fair-sized walk-in box. And we're consuming as much, as much power as a toaster or a hairdryer. But we can maintain that room precisely at 4 degrees centigrade, which is really incredible. We're quite proud of that. That came out of our senior group. And then we have one engineer on staff who is a real passionate young engineering, aka geek, if you will. A young Mr. Otto. You would be one of those lucky few, I think, who is brought in to meetings long before any IP is made public and you get a glimpse into what is coming down the pipe before most of us. I would think that you've got stories to tell that you can't tell, but what you do and how you do it is highly respected in this industry. We all have two or three points in our lives that are critical to determining the path we pursue and where we eventually end up. If you can think back, can you tell us whether those two or three situations stick out in your mind? And if so, can you tell us about them? I would say number one, passion. As a young teenager and as a nationally ranked runner, we had passion, but we also had extreme discipline. 
almost to the point where some of these guys were excessive compulsive behavior. And that paid off in dividends when I went go through my tenure of nighttime schooling. I was in that class where I didn't give up for anything because I said, I see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you got to train in order to get there. And that discipline of running put that back on my mind and said, you're not going to be happy with yourself unless you cross that finish line like you said you would. I mean, the minute it comes out of your mouth, there's a serious commitment there. And I'll never forget when I told my dad I was going to start my own company. Took them up to the Agawak Canyon on the, on the train ride. And the girls went shopping and my dad and I went for a cold beer. And I, and I told them I was quitting my corporate job at Honeywell. I'm going to start my own company. Without hesitation, I'm going to do this. Self-commitment and passion and being able to put yourself out there and say, nothing is impossible then you get out there and you get it done and get it done at point style. So it's a lot of fun. Live your life to have stories to tell your grandchildren. I have to ask, if you had not studied mechanical engineering, was there a plan B? What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Quick question. If I analyze that now, I do have a real keen eye for architecture. I love older architecture and I'm quite impressed with what they built without AutoCAD and laser tools and such. I think I would have been an architect or a pilot. I love the fly. I love being on that cutting edge. And both creative pursuits. Final question, sir. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? That's a great question to be determined. I would say it's to challenge our team to look for those little nuggets of self-improvement and things that we can prove upon with our customers who are being faced with challenges every day with CFC legislation. How do they pick the right refrigerant for the refrigeration cycle? How do we make it more energy efficient? How do you make it more serviceable? How do you make it easier to use? Get it done for fewer dollars and make it more reliable or more robust and add that extra level of service above and beyond that. Continued success in all areas of self-improvement. Be better tomorrow than we were yesterday. Your biggest competitor is the one in the mirror. That's correct. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. That was Glenn McCarthy, President and CEO of LabWorks International in Woodbridge, Ontario. You can learn more about Glenn and his team at labworksinternational.com. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us at laboccupier.com and on social at laboccupier. You can email me at jwilson at leonard.com. On a final note, we'll appreciate you promoting us online with the hashtags NGBIdeas and NGBI. Thanks so much for listening.